Welcome to a pivotal moment in tennis history. It's a moment we're living and witnessing right now. Today, we stand on the brink of a revolution, not just in how the game is played, but in how it's understood. Five years ago, when we embarked on this project, we anticipated changes, but what's unfolding is far more dramatic and powerful than we ever imagined. Gone are the days of solely relying on impressionistic methods and the opinions of tennis gurus. We are now in an era where every shot, every point, and every strategic decision is being transformed by the unyielding power of data analytics. This isn't just a change. It's a seismic shift that is redefining the very essence of tennis as we know it. As we experience these monumental changes firsthand, we invite you to join us on this groundbreaking journey. Together, let's discover how data analytics is not just influencing, but revolutionizing the world of tennis. So the Arms of Winning podcast is brought to you by Sterling Strother and myself, Dan Travis. This podcast is dedicated to shedding light on the new era of tennis. It looks at the completely new areas and realms of possibility that this new era represents. Primarily, we examine the battles that will be fought as the player develops competitive intelligence. We ask you to subscribe to the podcast, both on the channels, Apple, Spotify, and Amazon, and subscribe directly to us by visiting www.artofwinningtennis.com. We can help you negotiate your way around this tremendously exciting new era in tennis. Good morning, Stanley. Good morning. So today, we're going to outline the limits of traditional tennis culture and the revolutionary role of tennis data analytics. We're going to discuss how these limits led to this new concept change. We will look at the idea of why players remain lost and why players are at the mercy of both opinion uh, and emotion. Tennis data analytics has the potential to reverse that, and that process has begun. We're going to be discussing what tennis data analytics is and why it's going to bring an end to the dominance of traditional tennis culture. So I want to have, Sterling, I want to have a look, um, give a historical perspective here. And I think we should discuss the origins mm -hmm. and the evolution of what you and I call traditional tennis culture. So first of all, what do we mean by traditional tennis culture? So Sterling, over to you. I thought about this and traditional tennis culture is really just the collection of learned beliefs and opinions, and even traditions that have attempted to create a framework to identify how to develop as a tennis player and as a tennis coach. I mean, what are some of the, um, the features of traditional tennis culture when, when we refer to it? Because I think it's important that we, we come to some understanding of what it is, because I think people would say to you, well, isn't it just, you know, just tennis? People go out and play, you get coaching, and and stuff happens. But what's what's the, what's the traditional or what's the culture about traditional tennis culture? 
Well, I think one of the things that traditional tennis culture does is it it focuses a lot on individual shots of a player. And it tends to dramatize these individual shots. And the isolated shot making is when a player or coach emphasizes one shot at a time and defines success in terms of producing and duplicating great shots. So focusing on playing great shots one at a time, it lacks the situational context, which will consistently cause a player to subjectively judge their shot as either good or bad. And so when subjective judgment is activated in a player, objective observation about how the shot affected their opponent is neglected. And so this is one of the main features of traditional tennis culture. And if, if you, uh, being a coach for 30 plus years, I certainly was, was caught in the traditional tennis culture. That's how most we, we yeah. like I said before, it's a collection of learned beliefs and opinions and traditions. And so becoming a tennis coach, you learn from other coaches, you go and you, you get certifications through uh, national and world organizations. But, but these, this is the main feature that tends to be demonstrated on the practice court between coach and player and how players tend to mentally develop this idea that they need to create great shots. And that's how they will win more matches more often. Okay. So traditional tennis culture in that sense is a way of understanding what is most important. It's kind of like what we call an, an ideology. So what tennis one thing the traditional tennis culture then will make put at the forefront of our heads and put in front of us is this idea that it's about it assumes individual shots are going to, are going to be decisive in matches that's what we should be focused on that's what they're talking about in the commentary boxes when we're watching uh the majors and so on so we and, and, and that's how we talk about it that's how we talk about the way tennis matches are played and how we and how we describe ourselves as players in that sense isn't it correct so I've, I've got a good backhand or a bad one my serve's good it could be better and what makes it good is sometimes I hit some aces. I just need to hit more often to make it even better. So it's taught in those individual shots. So I would, though, want, I'd really want to hear what you've got to say about this because we've discussed this um, in, in a lot of detail. And it's something that maybe isn't as obvious um, as individual shot making going in ISM. It's another feature of traditional tennis um, culture. And that's repetition on the practice court. This idea that you improve. Traditional tennis culture has a very strong attachment to how we, sorry, it's very closely related and determines how we improve and how we see ourselves improving. And it does that by wanting to send us out on the practice court for hours on end. And the more we do, the better. And it's this repetition. And that repetition could be in drills and rallying. Where do you think? we are at at the moment and do you agree with that idea that um that it's repetition or have i or, or, or have i uh, left that undefined well repetition in and of itself is powerful because our brain is like a computer it's better than a computer actually because mm-hmm. we actually unlike a computer we can choose whether we follow through a code a piece of code or programming 
yes. in our brain. So repetition builds that programming, that code. If and then, if this happens, then I'm going to do this. And that's how we build memory. But repeating yeah. shots one at a time without recognizing the consequences of the shot will lead players to believe that they are solely responsible for their errors. And so repetition is va- is a valuable way to learn and improve. However, repeating an action without considering the consequences will distort the perception of a player and coach. And so there must be a contextual link between great shots and good judgment in order for performance to improve and create a successful outcome. Mm -hmm. And so we created, and and I really derived this out of the data, two-shot sequencing is the antidote to individual shots being repeated endlessly without the competitive match play context. For example, when you play a match, you have an opponent in front of you. And when you strike a shot and it crosses the net and it lands in your opponent's court, it's going to come back. And so that is the consequence of creating a great shot. And so if you're, we'll talk about this later on today, hopefully, but the, the consequence is we're not looking up toward our opponent. We're solely focusing on our great shots, how we can create them even greater. And this is what we do on the practice court, this, this repetition of this. And it, it's, it sounds good. It maybe looks good, but it lacks this competitive nature uh, context so that you can make a link between good judgment and great shots. Yes, yeah, so there's several things that repetition does. And we do go into this in, in a lot more detail in the book. And we uh, put that right at the top of our, our list of antidotes to traditional tennis culture. And you mentioned the one-two resets and the one-two patterns and combinations. We'll come back to those. Now, I think when we've got repetition, we've got a problem here of it's about us, isn't it? When we're repeating our shots, as you said, it's the onus on us. The error is our fault, 100% response, you know, and this kind of thing. Traditional tennis coach traps us in, in ourselves in that sense. So we're, you know, we're responsible for the errors and therefore we're responsible solely for our, our practice. And the more we do of them, there's no distinction, for example, between shot number one and shot number nine, really. It's just an extension. It's just the ninth. Okay. But it, it's, it's removed the opponent from our thinking. And yes, there we are. We're thinking about ourself, ourself, ourself. We're judging the shot too. I want though to look at this, um, another feature of traditional tennis tennis culture, and that is the score in tennis. So the 15, 30, 40 love, and so on and so on. And I would add to that also the set score, that's slightly different, the game score. So the set was described as being a set that was 6-3. Okay, here's my problem with it. It mystifies what is actually going on, and we treat the score as the real thing as if it is actually, there's such thing as a set that is 6-3, or there's such a thing as 30-15. Um, there are certainly other problems with the, with the traditional score in tennis. Um, uh, when we started looking at this uh, in a lot more detail earlier in, in this year, we already knew that something was very odd about the score. 
It's in the book in more detail. But what do you notice about the school? What do you notice and what do you think caused you to suspect that something was wrong? Well, the game score in tennis is both deceptive and misleading to a player because it creates the illusion that they are up or down in the score by an inflated margin. Yes. And so players become mystified by the game score because it literally lacks the ability to define exactly the accurate and honest margin of separation between players and competition. And so when we have 15, 30, 40, there isn't a logical progression that reveals how close you are in the score to your opponent. And winning one point does not mean you are up or down by 15 or 10 points, which is the margin between 0 and 15, 15 and 30, and 30 and 40. And so to make matters even more confusing and distorted, the game score moves from a numerical system of tracking points to a grammatical way of tracking points. (laughs) And so deuce and advantage are both mythical scores that distract from the number of consecutive points needed to win the game. And so in addition, these words, deuce and advantage, fall short of revealing the probability or the chance of winning the next point. And then to even further compound this scoring scenario, if a tiebreaker game must be played between opponents, another scoring system is used. And the irony is that the way a tiebreaker game is scored, it actually correctly identifies the margin of victory or defeat by counting consecutively. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, et cetera when a point is either won or lost. And so I realized the game score was responsible for creating this illusion in players when I developed the momentum scoring system. And this tracks whether a player is winning or losing points consecutively. So the momentum score accurately defines the margin of separation between competitors. And so my goal in creating the momentum scoring system was to quantify momentum shifts between players as they won or lost points consecutively. And so momentum shifts have always seemed to be viewed and defined as elusive emotional events that were based on the feelings of an individual. So for example, I feel like I have the momentum now, or I may say, I feel like I've lost the momentum. And so these statements originate from a subjective feeling instead of an objective and quantitative result of an event, such as winning or losing a point in a game. And so this is how I began to see the game score, how I began to understand, and it's quite perplexing to me why it's taken so long for it to be questioned, called into question. And obviously, we're, the chances of the game score going away and we going to a more logical way of counting points, won or lost, it's probably not going to happen. But that's why 
the solution that I offer is, is in the momentum score and leaning on the momentum score is the real score and then acknowledging how that gives me the game score, how that gives me 1530 or 30 all or 4030. And so the momentum score helps me as a player negotiate the probability and chance of winning the next point because I'm basing that decision on how many points have I won or lost consecutively. And that is through the momentum score. Good. And I think that gives that, that's an opportunity for us then to move to look at analytics. Tennis data analytics offers solutions to the limitations of traditional tennis culture. It was, I mean, it was already happening, I think. I, I mean, it, was, it seemed to be in the pipeline from around 2011. Is that right? Yeah, I think, I think really like that's when I discovered it. But I discovered it independent of knowing what was happening at the ATP tour level or even through IBM and Infosystems. Um, I had really no knowledge of what was going on there. So I found the data independently. And then four years later in 2015, I actually met Craig O'Sanasi. And then we began to kind of talk and wrap our heads around what I had been doing versus what he had been seeing happening through IBM and Infosystems and the data that was coming forth. But yeah, data analytics has actually been around a long time. Um, Wimbledon is probably the only tournament that goes way back into, into data. They started doing data a long time ago. And this is something I found out through Craig, but, but I think the emergence of the data has really accelerated since 2015. And I think it's much, much of that credit goes to Craig and then even myself at the junior level and People have become more aware of what I was doing with data through Craig because I was on the first four shots of his um, online at his brain game tennis. So, but the, but it's interesting, to, you know, to note that I did discover this independently of Craig, and a lot of sometimes that there's some confusion in that. Oh, certainly just repeating what Craig's saying. No, no, I was I was already on the, on the train, you know, and Craig didn't know I was on the train and. And I didn't know Craig was on the train and then we discovered that. And that's how it kind of, but yeah, it's been, it's been around a, a long time, but it's starting to emerge for, for various reasons we can talk about here. Yeah. I mean, it's still not a very crowded train though, is it? No, no, no. There no, are no. many people it's, on it. No. There's a lot of people I mean, getting on the train. They'll look yeah. at it from the outside. Go, oh, look, yeah. there's the train. But yeah, There's a lot of people on the train, but they're jumping off the train. And because there's a, that's why at the art of winning, we're trying to bring to light more clearly how to use data and how to analyze it. And we're, that's why we've been introducing new metrics of data. And so we can continue to talk about that here today. Yeah, but Sterling, there seems to be two problems here from my point of view. So first, there was no room in tennis culture, or there didn't appear to be, there seems to be no room at all for the, um, the real tennis data analytics that we're discussing. What yes. do you think that was? Well, I honestly, I just simply believe that no one was actually noticing the data in the tennis matches that was already there, mainly because yeah. the way the practice court has been traditionally designed to omit competition and point play. And I'm as guilty as anyone in the beginning of 
setting up a practice court, designing a practice court that was that was solely focused on individual shots and improving and proving technique and even movement. But what's interesting is that the traditional practice court, it, it, instead of resembling competitive match play and highlighting the most important factors of winning and losing, the most common practice court environment is the one that's designed by coaches for players to improve, but mainly featuring repetition and shot perfecting rituals. And so unfortunately, this practice court rarely, if ever, you know, reflects the most common scenarios that players will experience during competitive match play. And so I think that for that reason, Mm. the data was, we were, we were looking past any data that was there. And so when in 2011, that's when I had that epiphany while watching two of my players play points. And I noticed the point rally length, the length of shots and how short they were. And then from there, from the PRL, began this incredible journey of discovering these metrics in data that allow for the connection between or the disconnect that was between the practice court and the match court to start to start to yep. connect them back together. I think the second problem with the traditional tennis culture and its relationship to, to data analytics, the data, uh, data analytics was available but I don't think, well, I know, right? I'm not going to pretend that I'm, I'm, I'm I know right. that in retrospect, but they didn't, it didn't have any of the key categories. And those key categories of, by those, I mean, in tennis data analytics, it was the way it was organized that was unique. Mm. That's what you created. So there are categories, and we're going to look at these in the more details a bit further on, the categories of momentum, PRL, first strike combination, and first strike pattern. Would you, you, you would agree with me that those those are the key categories? Well, I know you would because you you you, you created them. Yeah. Um, but it, <laughs> I, I I would say that that that's what it lacked, and that's why I want to bring us into the the, the next section of this podcast. The so the rise of tennis data analytics. What what actually happened? Sorry, well, before before we before we go there, I did want to say that yeah, you know what to reinforce what you just said. The data analytics that are typically identified by traditional tennis culture, they were derived from the practice court and the features that were in highlighting individual shots, right? So, like forced and unforced errors are subjective judgments made by the data recorder and forehand and backhand errors are identified in a match, but their errors lack the contextual reference, right? So for example, you know, yeah. what shot in the point did your forehand or backhand error occur? You know, did it occur on the first shot after the serve, the S1, or did it occur on the R1, the first shot after the return? And so also which side of the court did it, did it occur on deuce or add? And so the data uh, reported prior to PRL, point rally link, first strike combination and patterns, and then the momentum score is extremely vague and it lacks sufficient context. It does, yeah. Um, and it's, it lacks the but when I, and I, where. I, I think at this stage, whatever we say about the categories that you created, the tennis data analytics, whatever you say, goes, goes nowhere near 
what's actually happened and how it's completely blown things apart. It's kind of like describing it from afar, you know. Right. That this, uh, but you know, it's it's been explained. You know, there's been an explosion, uh, literally. There's and- data. There's data that's put forth that's flashy. You know, speed of serve. Yeah. Speed of forehand, speed of backhand. That's all nice and flashy, and it glitters like gold. But is it relevant to a player, really? Right. Like, for example, there's a there's a statistic that's always been out there, and it's first first serve percentage. But a better statistic is first serve points one percentage. So how many points did you win when you made when you made a first serve? Or how many points did you win if a second when you when you made a second serve and you had to play out a point that, involving that's a second categories can do? Well, that is that is one category I have seen that has improved in the traditional tennis uh, culture yeah. data, right? That second serve points one. And I and I do believe that. That's probably some a bit of influence from Craig, you know, because he he does he does that type of data collection at the elite level, and so he does have the the eyes and ears of those that are sort of collecting the data. It, at least that's from what I per- perceive it. I uh, could be totally yes. wrong on that, but it just seems to me that there's some influence there that Craig is sort of. Throwing in there, hey guys, you know we'd love to see this, things like that. But the data points that I have have sort of structured, if you will, I'm not sure I actually created them out of thin air. I think they were always there. I just saw them, recognized them, and put them together in an orderly fashion so that we could we could find the storyboard of play, right? Because I think that's the thing that's been missing is the storyboard of play. What actually happened? In the match, and how can we describe it with data? But another, but another thing, Sterling, about those categories is that they haven't changed quite some time. There are other Correct. things that have changed, in right. But the categories themselves, once they were found and they stabilized, really have not. You might use them in different ways, and they might, but you've got essentially a set number of them. I wanted to, in this next segment, um, look at the rise of tennis data analytics. How did it happen? How did, how, how did we get here? And I want to explain in more detail what t- tennis data analytics is, and it's then we can we can perhaps look at its significance. I mean, it's, it's interesting to know that this long-awaited change to tennis that we have now, this revolution. It's been through our relationship with numbers. And this came as a surprise because tennis and traditional tennis culture has been paying attention to biology and in particular biomechanics and a kind of this kind of hyper-motivation psychology. But the revolution came from this, I call it a reacquaintance with the numerical. So this is when we say the numer- numerical it's numbers that are the the true number of tennis true tennis numbers and not the score which is something else the real numbers of a tennis match uh they've been discovered that's been something that we've been discussing recently how wasn't it you know is I, I i thought the revolution in the next stage would be you know these these intense biomechanical investigations and 
revelations and you know you can see it all the time coming up on facebook you know have you you know balance exercise it and blah 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 and you know all the hyper motivational brain activity and between points but it wasn't it was numbers good old-fashioned numbers well we are identifying more precisely when errors are occurring within a game and where they are occurring within a point and so this precise identification of error reveals to a player exactly what they should be doing to improve on the practice court. And so when they go to the practice court, after reviewing the relevant data, players can optimize their time rehearsing shot scenarios and combinations that prepare them to increase their probability of winning more points in the next match. And so the contextually, when you contextually rehearse two shot patterns, it gives the coach and the player the opportunity to discuss the real improvements that can be made within first strike, zero to four shots, and the patterns of play stage of the point, five to eight shots, to improve their overall win percentage. And so so it is the numbers that bring this revelation, this revolutionary idea that we can now more accurately pinpoint a storyboard of play. How many shots is the rally successfully lasting when you include the serve, return, S1, R1? Mm. And so it's extremely important to rehearse this way in practice so that you as a player and even the coach can experience this revolutionary like aha moment of, wait a minute. Why do I keep drop feeding a ball in play? Yeah. And is that something that I'm really going to experience? And then we talk about this, the balance in our bodies a lot, but what about the balance that's going on in our head, right? What about the stability of thoughts and the thinking problem solving idea of thinking through things? It is omitted from the practice court because the situations that we practice on the practice court hardly resemble the experiences on the match court. And so we we have this, this, this idea that we are like lost. We don't, players come and they're like, I feel like I'm lost. I don't, and they're not dealing with their the psychological part of, of playing the game stable with stable thoughts. And so They just don't know what to do. So when you rehearse the first strike stage of the point in practice, you are dealing with the psychological, mental, emotional ramifications of of the point being short and the consequences of losing, winning and losing. So scoring practice has been omitted. And that is something that definitely happens on the match court. We score every point. There's a winner or a loser. And so on the match court, we're dealing with that psychologically. But on the practice court, we're not dealing with it psychologically because we're not doing it. We're doing something else that we feel like is much more pressing or important. And, And I submit, and we have submitted this in the new book, The Art of Winning Tennis, that there's no way you can deal with the psychological aspects of match play unless you rehearse them the way they look and feel like they're going to be experienced on the practice court. And so you have to transform the practice court. There has to be a transformation of how you use your time in practice and what you give um, the most important uh, attention to. And so 
this definitely, like at the beginning of this podcast, you said this is a rep, this is this is, has revolutionary implications. And it truly has created me personally to be a far more introspective uh, coach and to, to, to open up the dialogue between player and coach to be much more than just, hey, you, you hit great forehands today in practice or your serve's really improving. Things that obviously need to happen, but they're, they're just sit, we're, we're, we're not contextual. coaching approach of repetition. And we go into you know we go into this in a, in, in a lot more deals on the book, and we will be talking about it in podcasts. But yeah, the difference between a coach that is incorporating tennis data and analytics, or is it, is that that coach in the way that we do it, and um, one who's from the traditional tennis culture is a difference between night and day. Now it, it, it is it's stark, and the, I think let's let's be honest here: the fact that we've got numbers, we've got measurement. Whereas before we were looking at stuff that was happening and go, here's my interpretation of it. Well, actually, I don't need an interpretation now. I can actually tell you. Yeah, I can actually tell you that in the first strike part of the game, in the second two points, sorry, in the second two points of 80% of the games you played, in that first, when it came to the first strike, right, you lost 70% of the time, right? Correct. That is not descriptive. That's prescriptive, and that's you know that's that is giving you new information that before right. it didn't exist. And then you can take that information and develop and create a practice court. Yeah, but the sheer power of that through the numbers, no question about it. I mean, that's that's. I mean, what you know, and then onto the practice court. That's your method. This is what you're doing. But you're developing this, aren't you? I mean, if we look at your um contributions and, and and the methods that you know that we've both been using um and and how we've developed that is the sheer power of it the the you know you're going straight to i can tell you where you lost correct which was not definitely an elusive and subjective opinions it's a series of numbers starting right. with a series of numbers isn't it right because most tennis you know, coaches aren't watching their players play matches or, or tournaments. Most coaches are not there. They can't be there logistically. And yeah, so, so what so they is a secondhand subjective opinion from the parent. Correct. Oh, they gave, you know, this very, you know, general, oh, they gave up. Right. Well, that might be true, but. And the player is so entrenched in the, the problem, battle. But, you know, when they're coming back to me with a sheet of detail, right? Well, it might only be three of the five categories. I show it to you, and we put our heads together, and we go, oh, there it is, there. Right. So it just it just creates an environment where there's better questions being asked so that we can get better answers for what actually really happened instead of this distorted perception from different parties of what they feel yeah. like happened or what they actually remember, which is usually very little. Because when a player is entrenched in the battle, they're not going to really remember how many exactly how many returns they missed or how many S1s they missed or how many points actually went to five to eight shots and how many actually went extended rally. And so to have the to have the data, the raw numbers, especially the point rally length, first or second serve, that will give us though just that number, point rally length, it gives us uh, like three other numbers, uh three other pieces of data, if you will, just from that one. And so that's the magic of tracking point rally length, 
under tracking the momentum score so you can see how the the momentum shifts and when they happened in the game and then you can nail down some concrete information that you can relay to the player and the parent and it really helps the parent watch the match in a different way and it relieves anxiety and and some stress there uh in the parent and then the player is is operating more on a, a stable mindset but yes agree 100 percent So this the, the next segment, I want to look at the revolutionary impact of this. And we, you know, we touched on this just now. I want to discuss with you how tennis data analytics is changing the coaching techniques and player performance. And here I want to look at how the categories of tennis data analytics are helping players in tournaments right now. Maybe we can work that into a, a, a couple of case studies that, that, that we've got, because I know obviously you've got um, you've got Pierce, your son. I've been working uh, with um, a girl, uh, Daisy, recently, or very right now, doing it now. So, can we can we have a look about you know what the revolutionary aspect is from our point of view on a day to day level? Sure. I mean, I'll give you a, a, just a quick example up here. So, last summer we went to Rome, Georgia, and he played uh, five matches in a big, big tournament down there. And I did all the data for every single match he played. I was right there with him. I was able to, to between matches, just relay to him some key points based on the data of the previous match and just some things yeah. I saw that were not necessarily particular to a particular opponent. It was just things that he could probably do a little bit better. I went to check how he was thinking and how he was planning his first two shots what was he planning and so i just went through the data well one of the things that we we found which is very interesting is that out of the five matches every time every game that he lost the first two points on yeah he was losing 75 percent of those games so he goes down Sorry, love can you 30. say that again if he goes to he when he went down love 30 in a game he lost the game 75 percent of the time so he was only winning 25, one out of four of those games that he went down love 30. So I was like, okay, so how do I, how do I relay this to a 15-year-old a and really hammer it home? Well, one of the things that I started doing back in 2015 is create the competitive intelligent games. And they are made up of first strike games and momentum games. And we talk about this extensively in the book and we finish up at, at the end with a list of the games. And then, of course, the website houses all the, the uh, videos and things. So what I did was I decided to go, okay, wait a minute. He's going down love 30. He needs to wake up. And then I went, there it is. I'm going to call the game, wake up. And so the, the point of the game is you have to win. You, you compete and two players play and you have to win one of the first two points. If you lose the first two points of the game and go down love 30, you lose a momentum point, you lose the game automatically and the serve rotates to the next player. And they, and they play a set this way. Now, if you win one of the first two points, the game continues and you have to play it out all the way. And so what was really fascinating about this is we came back from that tournament. We spent a few months really playing this game along with other games that we have. But we, we kind of focused in and laser focused in on this game, Wake Up. And he goes into a tournament. His next starts to play. 
a few months later. And man, I'll tell you, his the percentage of games that he lost the first two points were nearly zero. I mean, I think he lost yeah. one or two games in each match that he went down love 30. And he was he was going up more 30 love. He was even going up you know, 30-15 after he shared points. He was winning the first point of the game more. And so this awareness, the game woke him up to become aware of what actually was happening instead of just depending on his emotions and how he felt and and focusing on things that were not really helpful to have him engage and focus on the first two points of the game. So that's one example from my son Pierce and and I work with him probably more than any other player. Well, I know I work with him more than any other player I train. (laughs) You know, I work with about 30 other players a week in this at all levels. And so when I see this now happening in the data of another player, I will immediately recognize and I'll go, Hey, Dan, you know, your player, the, the, the data is telling us that, she may need to go to the practice court and start playing wake up and really hone in that skill of at least winning one of the first two points. And so that's kind of how the system works and how we're navigating and yeah. negotiating. Yeah. And we're discovering new things, you know, every day. And um, that's what's so exciting about this is it's not just a completed system. It's actually a system that is evolving and actually getting better and we're fine tuning it. And uh, that is really, I believe that's why this will have global impact. It's just a matter of getting the word out, helping people understand why data can be such a powerful influence in helping a player uh, achieve their goals and win more matches more often. Yeah. The potential then for the impact of this worldwide is fairly unlimited. Now it's been unleashed. I think we're going to see something very interesting happening. I think there's this this always this tendency with when people look at data and you can see it happen in other sports. They think, oh, this is making the sport more boring. Yeah? It's just rationalizing it and it's gonna make it just a series of that's the opposite to what's happened though, hasn't isn't it? Really don't do it it's the absolute opposite. Yeah, I think I think of, because of what's you, happened because for me, yeah, wow, the possibilities that it then affords you. Because if you're if you're focused on trying to correct a problem that isn't the problem, <laughs> right, you will continue to be lost in tennis. You will continue to look at these. You'll be trapped in traditional tennis culture. Look, that might have its own entertainment value in and of itself and it, you know it does and see people get in there but when you're able to overcome a problem because you've identified what it is correctly because that's what you're doing you're diagnosing more than anything else with these numbers you're then not able to prescribe a, a solution and then you're free then we can then we can find another problem how do we tackle it so your your growth is then set free you might have to return to this problem again. Yeah. It's part of the same mechanism. But you know, you need to check and where is it in my first okay, I may have been successful in the last game with my first strike. Because that's what traditional tennis culture thinking does. It kind of like, well, I've overcome that now, or my backhand's improved now, and I'm never gonna have that problem again. Right. 
That's exactly right. It, it, is, it is an ongoing process. And as you increase in level of skill and you start to play players that are on a, a higher realm of competition, yeah. then you have to revisit these areas and fine tune. But what I love about the data is it, it contextualizes how my practice is going to be arranged and designed. Yeah. And then from there, I can start to fine tune. Why do I really need us a, a serve that's more powerful or more accurate or have more spin or a different type of spin? The why is, is starting. We're starting to answer the why because we found the when and the where. And we're not being diverted or uh, distracted and going to other areas like working on our extended rally and flow, getting into the flow and hit a hundred balls in a row. Mm. It's that doesn't happen enough to warrant the type, the type of, or the amount of time that we are spending on rallying in practice. Because but there's, 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 so look, yes. there's a tremendous efficiency that you've introduced. Yes. With tennis data analytics. Absolutely. Absolutely. Efficiency. It hones the effort. It we have limited time in our schedules to be on the practice court unless you've got unlimited resources or more resources. And like I thought that was a great point that you made just recently about how uh, people try to mimic the shots of pros and yet they they're not going to put in even one 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 hundredth of the time and effort into actually doing it the way the pros are able to do it because that's they have the time and they have the resources and so there has to be um, a tipping point there where you begin to choose what's the most important and it's like when I work with players even beginners or even players that are just trying to get better on their high school team we immediately attack how they're going to play their first two shots. And we address that. And then we sequence the serve with the next forehand or the serve with the next backhand. And then we're able to determine the technical deficiencies that might be there, or we may polish, we're polishing up on technique, but we're doing it while we wrap it around and inside the text, the tactical situation of playing the serve and then playing the next shot. So. That's what is extremely valuable about data is it it keeps us focused on what's the most important aspect of play that leads to winning more points consecutively. I think the tennis world could well look different, very different this time next year. That's why I think. Let's see what happens. I want to talk in this segment, though, about what we've done so far to introduce this concept of competitive, we call it competitive intelligence. That's what we're building with our players. And data analytics is a way of increasing and expanding competitive intelligence for a player. And that process and that definition, if you like, of competitive intelligence is what is in is in the book that we released last month, The Art of Winning Tennis. And the moment that's, that's available on, on uh, Kindle, print copy and audio book as well, which we hope 
is going to, it's not an easy book. That's the feedback I'm getting. We are going to be able, it's going to allow you to make this transition into this new way of thinking, right? We're going to, you know, we're going to walk there with you uh, throughout, throughout the book because it's, it's a strange place. It's very different from the traditional tennis culture that we're used to with that and the thinking that comes with it. We've got the free download at um, www.artofwinningtennis.com and that's going to give you something really interesting. We thought a lot of what we would give you. And that is, we've got three games that Sterling devised. And he mentioned the games earlier on. And this is where we take the data onto the practice call. And we then, in real time, um, specify, the spe- specify the games that we're going to use that day on the call. And there's, well, how many are there? I mean, we're pushing up to 30 right now, maybe 30 plus. And I've got three or four in the in the pipeline developing right now because it takes me some time to develop them because I have to think through the scenarios and I have to think, is this re is this something that's reality or is it just something that's based on something? But here's what you've done. And here's one of the sometimes disorientating things about the new tennis world is that you've made the practice call more like the match than the match. I love saying that. Because people that's, look at you going, what? what are you It's true, though. I mean, I like to tell you, I have some players that come see me, and they're like, holy moly. Like, I feel it's that's more pressure. It's like more like anxiety here than I even feel when I play a match. I'm like, exactly. That's the point. The point is to, to just immerse you into having to deal with the consequences of your actions. Because you're going to have to deal with the consequences of your actions when you get on the match court. So let's ramp it up. And and we try to keep it, though, balanced. We don't want to go too crazy with, you know, keeping a lot of pressure, too much pressure and too much anxiety. We want to keep it at a good level. So we're constantly having this dialogue with our players. How does it feel? What are you thinking? What do you feel like right now? And sometimes we see it physically with <laughs> – physical emotion, right? Outburst of whatnot. And so that's when we stop and we have a conversation around and then that's addressing the real issue. And so, yeah, so these resources, the book, the audio book is fantastic. I've been listening to that myself the first time. Dan uh, narrated it, which was fabulous in the Queen's English. Love that. Um, just, it's just so pleasant to listen to. And it's interesting because even though we wrote the book, you know, I read the book. I can't even tell you how many times before you actually published it, hearing it being read back to you, even myself, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, it's just making the wheels turn. And I'm just like, wow, this is really, but you're right. I mean, it is, it is not an easy, necessarily an easy read, but I've always said anything that's easy is probably not really worthwhile anyway. Anyway. And it definitely things that are easy don't really make a long lasting impact, right? And make a short. Yeah, you would, but, you know, you'll be up. You, you need to have it with you. Well, well we did. You need we to have it with you, our, don't you? Right. But we did our best. <laughs> honestly, in your we, back. we did our best to try and be as clear and concise with the theory, with the um, and just the theories, but the the ideas, the system, the way it kind of flows back and forth. But it. If you're not used to 
this type of information and, and arranged in this way, it can be sort of daunting. So my advice is yeah. read the book slowly, take, read a few pages a day. Um, don't try to read the whole thing in one sitting. That'll just almost make your mind explode. You got to kind of take it easy. And then you actually got to go back and read it again and then just sort of chew on it a little bit, meditate on what we're saying, and then actually go apply it. See, once you start applying this, it really becomes more alive. It, it breathes life into the words when you actually start doing and experimenting with what we're the ideas we're talking about here. Well, we get in touch with us. We're not difficult to, to get hold of. <laughs> We might you might have to wait because we're sitting there doing data analytics at the moment because the um what was it the, yeah the phone's been off the hook as it were because we've been doing that but get in touch with us we want to have that conversation it it does you know whether whether you're a coach and you want to apply and you want to be part of this uh, contact us immediately we'll talk to you and we can we can look at how we can get this get this in motion for you we can also be you know you you can visit us both our venues um, that's something that we that we're going to be doing a lot more. Uh, moving forward, and it's 2024, and we're going to be running those on-call programs. Like Sterling, you're going to come over to the UK. I'm going to come to you and over in North Carolina. And yeah, this this thing is in motion now, um, and we do want to speak to you. We will talk to you. You know, we want to hear where you're at and um, how you think um, this can help you. So, Sterling, I'd like to round things up there, if that's okay, because um, we're, we're bang on the hour and. I really want you to. Oh, I want to thank you for listening today because it, you know, this is our. This is the first in the new podcast series. You've probably heard us speak before. Um, I hope you have. But this is it. This is this is this is podcast number one. We're going to be doing one every week. I hope. Subscribe to it and any of those platforms, and we'll send you out the um, the the information will be sent out on Friday about what we will be discussing next week, twentieth of December. So. Um, hang tight for that. But in the meantime, get in touch. Send us messages. Love to hear from you. So, Sterling, thank you. Is there anything you'd like to add? That's all. You can find us. We are happy to uh, offer any assistance to you and work with you. And uh, we are working with parents and players together. We are working with coaches and their players. We have more of a collaborative heart. We love to collaborate. We love to share ideas. We love to hear what your experiences are and what you're going through and then figure things out that way. So, yes, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, our first episode of the new series, and this is a series, and we're just going to keep going. And because it's very important to keep talking through what we've written about and some things we may say on the podcast, we just kind of we're expounding more on what we talked about in the book. You can only write a book this thick, right? So yeah. So thanks, Dan. This was great to get together again and um, share the art of winning uh, tennis with the world. Yeah. Thank you.